Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Hey, dear listeners, this is Jonah Gover, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, let's just uh, uh, entertain the motion to stipulate all of the things I normally say at this point about signing up, doing good things um finding inner peace at the dispatch.com and just get started because i'm a little pressed for time i'm a little frazzled and i think like everybody else i'm still trying to process the consequences and significance of donald trump turning out to have uh covid um it's it's a weird time you know um like just think about it this way last sunday night the New York Times tax story broke. And um, that was, in the moment, seen as big news. Whether it should have been seen as big news and all of that kind of stuff, people could debate, right? There were some people who said it was a nothing burger story. We shouldn't be treating it like a big story. But the fact was, is people were treating it like a big story and, and it sucked up a lot of oxygen. And then on Tuesday night, we had the debate. And then Last night, Thursday night, uh, or I should say early Friday morning, we get the news that um, Trump has COVID. So Lord knows what this Sunday um, holds for anything. Um, and uh, so anyway, it's, it's big news. Um, I, don't th- I, think, I think we should sort of start from the outset by just sort of conceding something that a lot of people in my line of work um, are reluctant to do, which is nobody knows what this really means. Um, there's lots of conjecture about what it could mean, and I engage in a lot of it in today's G file, or if you're listening to this in the future, yesterday's G file, and um, um, and so we should just sort of talk through it for a second, I guess. I think the first thing to say is, and this is what I read, how I begin the G file is. You can not like Donald Trump. I don't like Donald Trump. I think he is unfit for office. That doesn't mean you have to be a jerk about him getting a potentially life-threatening, uh, well, it's a life-threatening disease, but a disease that could take his life. I just think, you know, you can um, just not be a jerk, right? That doesn't mean that you have to show some grand outpouring of profound sympathy Um I'm fully aware that Donald Trump is usually incapable of showing that kind of thing. Um, and we could, I could recount all sorts of episodes, you know, from him mocking Hillary Clinton when she had a pneumonia diagnosis to, um, the, you know, the disabled reporter from the New York times. But my point is not to do that kind of thing. If you're going to do it as so let's make the argument that, that he somehow now, um, deserves this or that you're going to take um great delight in the fact that he is ill i will say i just think karmically you know and also sort of just sort of narratively it makes so much sense that he has covid um and i I never wrote it because i thought it would be inappropriate but i must have said to a dozen Friends, you know, this has to, you know, the way this story is developing, it has to end with Donald Trump getting the coronavirus just because of the way he talks about it, the way he invites um, that kind of, you know, cliffhanger season finale um, about so many things. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like my thing about how, um, you know, before he got COVID, I was saying, you know, just the way the narrative works. And the way he was talking about how he needed to get Amy Coney Brown and Amy 
Amy Coney Barrett on the court um, because he needed her to settle, to break the tie in the Supreme Court, which I still think is an incredibly dubious and dis- in contention and, and, and an often sort of just a bad faith argument, particularly when it comes from, say, Ted Cruz. Um, uh, but we can talk about that another time, I suppose. Uh, and I also think it's terrible for the court and the legitimacy of the court to go around saying that you need this appointment so that implicitly your assumption is she will break the tie in your favor and hand the election to you. That is doing a real disservice to her. It's doing a disservice to the court. It's doing a disservice to, to civic and government legitimacy and all of that. Um, but my point was is that you know, by doing that, it was almost guaranteeing that the, the writers of this crazy timeline were going to end up having the election thrown to the Supreme Court and, uh, and all three Trump appointees uh, voting to give the election to Joe Biden. Because that's just, you know, that's sort of how sort of like the, the Russian and the Pine Barrens and the Sopranos uh, that went nowhere. If this thing is going to actually circle around and make sense as a as a wacky Mexican soap opera, that's how it would end. And that's how I kind of always felt about the coronavirus thing is it just it seemed maybe it's just my own sort of uh, weak tea Jew sense of comeuppance that, you know, and, and bad luck that you, you don't say things um, out loud if you don't want them to become true. I don't know, but it just sort of seemed obvious to me that it would at sort of an intuitive level. So anyway, he has it. I hope he gets better. I hope he doesn't get really sick. Um, and, uh, but so we should just talk about it for a couple seconds, a couple minutes about what the political consequences of this are. Um, as I write today, I, I, I don't see how, of all the plausible scenarios, and again, um, to even talk about plausible scenarios is to invite vengeance from the keepers of this timeline. But um, let's say he has a very mild case and he's in quarantine and he basically observes quarantine and he acts responsibly and all of that. Um, just as a matter of sort of political math, it's terrible news for him. He can't go around campaigning. Um, all he can do really is tweet. Uh, we can talk about, you know, these ideas of doing like a virtual debate and, you know, and social media video stuff, um, which would depend on him looking and sounding very healthy, you know, which is an important point. But for the most part, he's just out of the race for two weeks. And that's just terrible news for him because uh, he doesn't have two weeks to spare. He's losing the race. And, you know, I keep hearing from people who have access to various polls, who are looking at the data. I think it is more likely than not that the bottom is dropping out of his campaign. And I believe this last night before we heard about the COVID stuff. Um, I think that the debate was very, very, very bad for him. But even if it wasn't really bad for him, even if on the merits or the substance of the debate, it changed no minds, it um, was just a wash, that's still bad news for Trump because he's behind on the scoreboard. He needs more voters in his column than he currently has. And when you waste time or waste an opportunity, it's like wasting downs in a football game when you're losing and time is running out. Every lack of a success is, in, in fact, a loss. It's not a push. And being in quarantine for two weeks is bad for him. And, um, um, and the irony here, and I, I wrote about this today as well, you know, the irony here is that under normal circumstances, if it wasn't the final two, you know, not the final two weeks, but the penultimate two weeks of the election, um, of the campaign, uh, you could see how it might be good for him. I'm one of these people who has long argued that um, Donald, one of Donald Trump's greatest liabilities is his need to be constantly the center of attention. And he would rather positive attention, you know, praise and hazanas and, um, you know, and, and, and boat parades and all that kind of stuff. But if he can't get that, he would much rather have negative attention than no attention at all. And there are reports in one of the 
one of the tell-all books, or maybe two of the tell-all, I can't even keep count anymore, about how, you know, he would, every morning, he would look at the front pages of the various major newspapers, and if he went more than 24, 48, you know, 72 hours without being a big headline, his name being in a big headline in the paper, he would do something to get his name in the headlines of the newspaper. And I think that's one of the great reasons why, one of the primary reasons why um, his approval has stayed as low as it has been, is that there are a lot of people, I know a lot of these people, they're friends of mine, who like his policies or think he's, you know, certainly better than the Democrats, like the appointments, like the deregulatory stuff, like this, like that, whatever. I like a lot of that stuff too. But they really resent him being constantly in their headspace. They really resent him being in, um, being being the 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 conversational skunk in the garden party, who you know where you have to walk on eggshells around other people talking about him because some people hate him so much, or you have to defend him and all that. And you know I, I talk about in this podcast all the time about how envious I am of Switzerland where lots of people don't know who the president is. And yeah, I know it's a different kind of presidency, yada, yada, yada. But there are a lot of people who would like to support Donald Trump if they didn't have to constantly defend him, argue about him, have his abrasiveness shoved in their faces. And it's sort of, it's sort of like John Kerry, who, you know, I think the, the consensus opinion among pretty much everybody now is a, a human toothache. Um, in 2004, it was hilarious when he would go campaigning, whenever he would visit a state, his poll numbers in that state would go down. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but it happened a lot. And when he would leave the state or he would stay out of the news, uh, he would, um, his poll numbers would go up. And it's because people liked the idea in 2004, or a lot of people liked the idea in 2004 of voting for somebody other than George W. Bush. But when presented the actual human incarnation of that alternative, they're like, I don't want to vote for that guy. Um, you know, I mean, he has better hair than Odo from, you know, uh, Deep Space Nine. But beyond that, he's really annoying. And um, Trump is bothersome to a lot of people in completely different ways, but it's a similar phenomenon. So you could see if he was in quarantine or the equivalent of quarantine, it just stayed out of the news for a little while. And people could um, support the policy, support the course of the country, the direction of the country and all that kind of stuff without having to take, opinion, take a position on Trump's personality and his tweets and the statements and all that kind of stuff. You could see how staying out of the news would be to his benefit. But not, you know, in, at the beginning of October during a presidential campaign where the voting has already started. Joe Biden has... I think, you know, if you want to, you know, say the polls are fake, be my guest. But I think you're basically being ridiculous. Um, you can argue that the polls are overestimating Biden's lead by some percent or that the poll, the national polls don't matter that much compared to the state, you know, the battleground polls, which is true. But Joe Biden has a seven, eight point lead in the polls. It's remarkably stable nationwide. And um if it were a three-point lead in the polls, you could very easily see how uh, Trump could still win the Electoral College. But you can't really be that far ahead nationally without pulling even the battleground states into your column. I mean, Hillary was two or three points ahead in the national polls, and Trump just barely grabbed an Electoral College victory um, by winning basically 80,000 votes in three states. Um, but a seven-point margin of victory is is much more difficult thing and you look at a lot of the polls particularly the stuff that's coming in post debate or over the last week and his position in a lot of the battleground states is deteriorating not improving um you know any map in which ohio is even remotely competitive for joe biden is a map that donald trump is not going to win and so staying in quarantine for 14 days um, is just eating up the clock, and he can't afford to do that. Um, I also think that this is not good for him because just because 
where are going to be the next opportunities for him to change the momentum of of the race? Uh, you could say the debates, but they may not happen now. Um, uh, I think it was sort of crazy for the left to go nuts about how Biden shouldn't do any more debates because Biden won the debate. Um, now, you could see an argument where in the second debate, Trump would have learned the lessons from the first debate and not been the same guy. And if he gave Biden a chance to step on himself uh, and actually have the kind of senior moment that the Trump campaign wanted from the first debate, okay, maybe that would have changed the momentum. And maybe that's the real reason why liberals didn't want him to have another debate. Um, But I think a lot of liberals just thought that Trump was so obnoxious that he shouldn't be dignified with another debate. And that's a stupid reason to offer that strategy to the Biden campaign. If if your real worry is, is that Biden really could mess up um, and he needs a plausible face-saving exit strategy from having another debate, then um, that's a different thing. And that's what this could provide. Um, and so I think that the, the so there's that, right? So there's the, 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 you just look at the schedule ahead. What are the opportunities for, for Trump to change the narrative? There are not many. Moreover, the fact that he has the coronavirus brings the narrative back to the one place he didn't want it to be, which is the coronavirus. If, you know, he was trying to make it about law and order, he's trying to make it about this and that, and he was trying to make it about Hunter Biden, and um, he didn't want to talk about the coronavirus. He said, we moved on. He says it's under control. You know, there was some quote in the New York Times from some Trump administration officials saying, we kind of view it like, um, a storyline in a TV show that's not working out. And so we're just going to end that storyline as if the coronavirus would behave and, 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 um, go along with that. Well, you know, whatever your, whatever the Jedi mind trick that they were trying to pull by saying the pandemic is no longer a thing, that's just over now because he's got it and you can't go around claiming, Oh, it's completely under control, but yeah, I got it. And my wife got it. Right. And so did the chairman of the RNC, chairwoman of the RNC. Um, and so did my top aide, Hope Hicks. And who knows who else is going to test positive in the coming days? We already know that Mike Lee does. And so it makes, you know, the coronavirus once again central to uh, the political narrative of the presidential race, which is what Joe Biden wanted. So I just don't see how that's good for him. And then there's the, you know, then there are like the worst case scenarios for him that he gets actually really sick. Um, you know, I think that's one, again, I don't want him to get really sick, but if he gets really sick, that's, you know, forget dying. I think everybody can concede that that would be really bad for him. And that's not something anybody should hope for or any of that kind of stuff. But if he gets really sick, uh, then a lot of the, you know, uh, not only is a lot of the sort of poo-pooing of this, of the seriousness of the disease look a thousand times more irresponsible and dumb and embarrassing. But psychologically for Trump, he's a guy who I think embarrassingly, I do, I think his conception of what manliness is, is the exact opposite of what we should be teaching young men defines manliness. Uh, But his definition of manliness is purely this sort of alpha male, be strong, be tough, um, be, you know, in some ways it's basically, you know, it's Cobra Kai, no mercy, that kind of thing. Punch back twice as hard, no matter who it is, if it, even if it's like, you know, a gold star mom. And, uh, and he constantly has raised this issue that Biden doesn't have the stamina and the, the strength, uh, to be president of the United States. And if he's laid low by this, that not only undermines him politically, I think it undermines him, you know, psychologically. Remember, this guy is a famous germaphobe. So there's that problem. There's also the problem is that if, if the only way he has to communicate is by tweeting, well, that's, that's no good for anybody. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm with the full, you know, all of the caveats and a truckload of grains of salt and all the rest. I am perfectly comfortable with saying that I could be completely wrong about how things are going to transpire, but I'm, I know I am not alone, including a lot of people among a lot of people who very much want Trump to win 
that there is a feeling that the wheels are coming off the bus here. But, you know, beyond that, so then you get then you get into like the really crazy speculative stuff. And um, and I don't want to be at all ghoulish about it, but everyone's talking about this. Everybody's thinking about this. This is not a trivial thing to think about. Um, and it seems to me that it is not completely insane. It may be modestly insane, but it's not completely insane to start thinking about scenarios in which Trump resigns. And now I can make an argument that it would be good for the country, be good for the Republican Party, and it would be good for Donald Trump to do that on his own terms. We know that, or at least I think we know, that a huge chunk of all of his grotesquely irresponsible stuff about how the only way he can lose is if the, if, if the election was rigged um, has to do with his burning need to save face, right? His burning need to not be a loser. And, um, and that way, you know, and, and so that way, if he does lose, he gets to say, no, the election was stolen from me. They made this stuff up. Um, they created all these votes. Um, and, uh, and then he could go off into, you know, exile at OANN or Trump TV. I mean, the idea that OANN wouldn't change its name to Trump TV, uh, seems farcical to me. I think that would be a no brainer for them. Um, why not just as a matter of truth and labeling, it would make sense. So anyway, he would go off into exile and say he, the election was stolen from him and say that he, um, was with a rightful president and that he's going to run again, or maybe not run again, or just tease people a lot. So he could stay in the news that he was going to run again and not decide until the last minute, which is what he did for years before he ran in 2016. And anyway, so the COVID thing actually provides an exit ramp like that. And there's a lot of good reporting, enormous number of rumors in Washington from 2016 that he wanted an exit ramp back then. The, the second installment of the New York Times story um, made it pretty clear that he ran for, and it, again, Times story could be wrong, but uh, the general thrust of it was that uh, with his apprentice money dried up and a lot of looming debts, he needed to do something else to boost his brand name and create new opportunities for himself. And that's why he ran for president in the first place, not to win, but um, to get his name out there and to be more of a celebrity. And uh, there were all sorts of rumors from serious people in Washington who knew people on the campaign and all that kind of stuff who told me that, you know, Trump would say, you know, in effect, how the hell do I get out of this? But he did, it, there was no exit ramp for him to do it without looking like a loser because he kept doing better and better. And then, of course, he convinced himself that he should be president, that he wanted to be president. Then he became president, really liked the toys and the adulation and being in the center of attention. And plus, it immunizes him from all sorts of legal things. And so he wanted to stay president. Well, you can come up. And again, I understand this is more like fiction than, than uh, likely. But you can make the argument that he now has another face-saving way to get out of this. He could say, you know, look, if it weren't for the China virus, I would, uh, I would have won. And, you know, you can be sure that a lot of the usual suspects would, you know, amplify that argument all over the place. And it would, and, and it, even for people who didn't believe it, the idea of using it as a way to further demonize China and use it as part of the sort of nationalist stuff, um, would give them every incentive to do it particularly when a lot of them, you know, still want to be popular among the, the hardcore MAGA crowd. And so he would get to go, instead of saying the election was stolen from him with mail-in ballots, you get to say the election was stolen from him by the China virus. Um, and, you know, whether or not you found that plausible, that's a perfectly useful talking point for him. It would also, be, I, you can make a case, it'd be good for the Republican Party. Certainly, I think Mike Pence would like to make that case. Um, you know, I don't know whether or not he's in true legal jeopardy the way, you know, a lot of the sort of MSNBC crowd does. But, you know, I think Mike Pence would take the opportunity to play Gerald Ford to his Richard Nixon. Um, and certainly, you know, being out of, all, you know, like say Mike Pence wins, which I think would be very unlikely, but not as unlikely as some people think. Um, uh, you then have a scenario where 
the president of the United States is deeply, deeply indebted to you, or to me, I should say Donald Trump. That's got to be somewhat attractive. Meanwhile, a whole bunch of Republicans who are looking worse and worse. I mean, I saw Joni Ernst in a new poll is down like eight points, and it's looking really bad for Cory Gardner. And, you know, Lindsey Graham at least is statistically tied, but being statistically tied in South Carolina is not great news for Lindsey Graham. Um, uh, I haven't looked at the latest polls for Cory Gardner, but I did hear that there was some guy in a doomsday cloak with a giant scythe outside of his campaign offices. Um, a lot of these people, for reasons that I think at the time probably made the most sense, concluded that they needed to stay supportive of Donald Trump to, in order to hold on to his base. And they hoped that they could do that while simultaneously overperforming him in the suburbs. Well, that's looking less and less likely. And this provides them a kind of lifeline to say, you know, look, Donald Trump, through no fault of his own, has contracted this terrible disease that started in China, and um, we need a full-time president. So I think it is time for the president to step aside, yada, yada, yada. Um, now, again, don't think any of this is likely, but it's it's at least interesting to think about. Um, one last point, and then I'll move on, is uh, this debate thing. I, I was listening to the commentary podcast where... Um, um, uh, John Podoritz was making the case that Trump's quarantine has to be, um, you know, the equivalent of, of the security protocols for Hannibal Lecter or the Andromeda strain or something, and that he couldn't even do um, video stuff because no one is allowed into the room. They have to leave the food outside the door. Most of John's analysis is spot on, but I disagree with that. Um, I do think that they could do, um, you know, guys in hazmat suits go in, you know, they, you know, like the, the, the guys who, you know, appear whenever there is a code, uh, 2319 and monsters Inc to get the sock off of one of the sleep monsters. Uh, they could go in and set up the cameras and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I know that, you know, MSNBC would, set itself on fire about how irresponsible that is. But I don't think most Americans think if you take an abundance of caution to go in and let the president of the United States communicate with the American people, uh, that it, that would be grossly irresponsible. And so you could set up some sort of, you know, Zoom debate. And I just don't know whose interest that would really be. I mean, I, I suppose it would be in Trump's interest to the extent that he needs to do something to change the course of the campaign. Um, but they would freak out because uh, all this talk about whether or not you could have a mute button would now be very real because, you know, I don't, I thought, I think the mute, the mute button argument in a live real debate is kind of stupid because, you know, you can still interrupt even if your mic is off. And so Trump could still step all over Biden Biden would still hear it. He would still be flustered. And my presumption is, is that Trump's voice carries well enough that Biden's mic would pick it up as well. You know, it just wouldn't be, it wouldn't be good audio quality. But if you're doing it by Zoom, you know, then, you know, the, the moderator just hits that little mute button and you can mute someone. And in a weird way, I think that uh, that actually would be to Biden's disadvantage. I mean, I know I made this point on the Dispatch podcast, which everyone should listen to, but Biden, uh, you know, one of the, the most egregious things about Trump's performance in the debate is that it was entirely geared toward getting Biden to have some sort of meltdown, right? Some crazy senior moment that they could then through digital, you know, social media, make go viral and make him really look like he was uh, in such cognitive decline that he couldn't be president of the United States. And Biden, who I do think obviously has lost the step, is not the drooling you know, liability that the Trump campaign has tried to um, paint him as. And Biden knew going into the debate that that's what Trump was going to try and do. And he didn't take the bait. And he did, you know, he did OK in that regard. Um, but the, the sort of real malpractice of that strategy 
is that there was no um, finesse to it. There were a bunch of moments where Biden's answers were hot garbage, and Trump interrupted him and saved him, for, saved Biden from actually looking much worse. Uh, you know, Biden's refusal to answer the question about the court packing is ter- is terrible and irresponsible. And I think the National Review editors had a good editorial on that. Of course, he should answer that question. Um, but time and again, there were these moments where Biden was just sort of, you know, looked like he was about to flail. And Trump jumped in and cut him off and made Biden look like the aggrieved party. And if I were the Biden team, I wouldn't agree to the Zoom thing because then Biden has to talk for the full allotted time. And he does very poorly. He does better talking to audi- in front of audiences than he does talking into these cameras. And we've seen that already. And it seems to me that, you know, that's a much easier thing to say no to. You don't even have to publicly say no to it. You just sort of drag your feet on the idea for a while and run out the clock. Um, so anyway, I think, I, I think this is going to be remembered as, is the nail in the coffin of the Trump campaign, but I could be wrong about that. It just, that's the way it feels to me on a Friday, you know, by this time tomorrow when the chuds are eating my face, um, I'll think that was all silly. Um, so let's talk about other stuff that's not rank punditry. Um, okay. So one thing that was from the debate that I thought was just kind of interesting, um, is this argument, which I think Trump delivered very well and is actually has a lot of persuasive power. I don't, I don't, I don't think the the nomination process in the final month before the end of the election, uh, is the time to have a Supreme court fight. I think it's bad for the country. I think it's bad for the legitimacy of the court. I think the way that Trump campaign is selling the pressing need to do this, as I was mentioning early, is often really bad. But I'm also in favor of her being on the court. And I think his argument that um, Trump, that the president is elected to a four-year term, the Republicans hold the Senate, you know, the sort of Mitch McConnell argument, which he's been much less hypocritical on than, you know, say, Lindsey Graham, that if the same party holds the Senate, the Senate has, you know, the, the right to fulfill its mandate to uh, confirm a Supreme Court justice. And the president's powers do not wane in the final year of a four-year term. And I think Trump delivered that argument very well. Um, but what I thought was sort of interesting about it, and um, has nothing to do with Trump or punditry or anything like that, is that it's an argument about formalism right? It's an argument about, um, for want of a better word, the legalisms of the liberal order of a constitutional republic, right? There are certain rules and procedures that are laid out in black letters on parchment that say X, not Y, not X plus this, not X except in circumstances like Z or anything like that, right? That kind of and I'm sure I'm misusing the terminology, um, but that kind of legal formalism, let's call it, right? That sort of uh, uh, rule-based, textual-based, um, by-the-bookism is the hallmark of the kind of classical liberalism that people like me and David French like, and that a lot of these new nationalists often heap scorn on, right? I mean, Adrian Vermeule was... Is mused about a monarchy, an elective monarchy. Um, Patrick Deneen is, you know, plays footsie with the idea that the um, that this kind of uh, you know, or, or like Yoram Hazoni is probably a better example, but like this sort of Kantian or Cartesian formalism where you just go by the rules laid out gives short shrift to the organic nature of the, of the real nation and the cultural imperatives and the will of the people. And that these things, this sort of Volksgeist, this spirit of the people is more important and more authentic than any sort of uh, strict axiomatic kind of stuff, right? This is the argument a lot of the serious eggheads of nationalism, may the 
more partisan, less eggheady um, supporters of Trump's version of nationalism make a watered down kind of like cheap Hong Kong knockoff version of that argument. You know, Trump was a disruptor. Um, he is fulfilling the mandate of, of the people who voted for him. He is expressing the true spirit of, of the American character and, and uh, these democratic norms that you guys keep talking about. Um, these, you know, these, these precedents, these should have much less binding power on him because we elected him to shake things up and go his own way. And, uh, you know, not all of those arguments are dumb. A lot of them are dumb, but, um, and a lot of them are super convenient and deployed selectively. Uh, you know, Mike Pence drives me crazy. I mean, this is a point I make a lot about how, um, uh, the right and the left weaponize norms, right? A lot of the stuff about hypocrisy and inconsistency um, and double standards is really uh, the form that it usually takes is to say, um, is to hold everybody accountable to norms of propriety, uh, to legalistic understandings of precedent, to decorum, to civility. Um, when uh, the other side breaks it, but when my own side breaks it, it's okay. Right. So that's why Mike Pence is always shocked and disappointed when Democrats say something rude about the president, um, or, or, or go outside a color outside the lines on some procedural thing or whatever. But when Donald Trump says something grossly and manifestly ruder or colors even farther outside of the lines, he falls back on this thing. Well, he was, he's a disruptor. He's in there to fight for the American people and to make America great again. And you shouldn't hold them to that standard. And um, so what I just thought was sort of interesting about this argument about the four-year term thing is that uh, it's completely at odds with the, the, the main thrust of both the hardcore eggheadery and the soft eggheadery when it comes to nationalism. The whole point of the nationalism thing is that you cannot cage the spirit of the true nation with these abstract rules that were written long ago, right? I mean, the alt-right crazies who are an even more extreme and virulent and scumbaggy version of this nationalism stuff, they mock the Constitution and people who like the Constitution. They call them, you know, um, uh, parchment worshipers and that kind of thing. They don't care about any of that stuff because they don't like to be constrained by the rules of uh, liberal democracy. And so I just think it's, it's kind of an interesting example, at least to me, and I'm one of the few people out there who actually, maybe I'm stupid for it, tries to take a lot of the sort of nationalist arguments seriously. Maybe that's because I seriously oppose them. Um, but I just think it's sort of interesting that this argument for why he must appoint um, you know, Amy Coney Barrett on the court is because uh, the formal rules give him the power to do it. And it doesn't matter if it's not popular with the American people. It doesn't matter if it violates precedent and all these kinds of things. It doesn't matter if it sort of shatters the other rules. The, the strict you know, within the four corners of the job description laid out in the Constitution, he has the power to do it, and therefore he has the obligation to do it, even if it defies the national will. Well, that's not that's not really how nationalism is supposed to work. You're supposed to have this, you know, this intuitive grasp of the, the, the Volksgemeinschaft, and that you're supposed to be a servant of that rather than these rules of formalism. And anyway, I just think it's kind of interesting. We don't have to belabor it anymore. Um, what else? Uh, the first column of the week, well, it's, it's kind of sucked. I, the first column of the week I wrote for the LA Times, which was a preview of why, which came out on um, Tuesday, which was the day of the debate. And normally I really try not to write my LA Times column on something that doesn't have a shelf life because my LA Times column after the first 24 hours becomes the basis for my first syndicated column, which you can usually find at the Dispatch and other fine locations on Wednesdays. 
And but they really wanted me to write about the debate, which meant that I had to write a second column. So the first column was on why I think presidential debates are kind of stupid and um, part of the problem about how we think about running for the president and and all that. And, you know, suffice it to say, you know, if there are a bunch of reasons why I don't like it, there are a bunch of reasons why they tend not to matter. You know, there was 1980 that mattered. There was 1960 that mattered. Um, uh, maybe there were one or two more that really mattered. I'm not sure. Um, but for the most part, they don't matter. And yet we invest all this hype in them. Um, but also I think that they kind of encourage bad citizenship. I, I roll my eyes whenever I hear people say, I'm waiting for the debate to figure out who I'm going to vote for. Um, and I guess, you know, this year is a little bit of an exception because I think there are a lot of people who are faced with such a weird choice when it comes to Trump and, and Biden. And one of these issues that, that the Trump campaign successfully got out there was this idea that Biden wasn't compass mentis. And so they wanted to see if that was in fact true, which was another reason why it was bad strategy to lower expectations so much. Um, but in general, I don't think they, they, they matter that much. This one, I think, historically will end up mattering because Biden so much exceeded those expectations and Trump um, made himself less popular with voters that he needs to put in his column and that aren't there yet. But, you know, the, the thing about bad citizenship is if, if in a normal election year, you've paid so little attention that you're waiting for one of these usually idiotic infomercials to help you decide whether you want, you know, the, you want 6,000 progressives running the a presidential administration, or you want 6,000 non-progressives running an administration just seems kind of weird to me. I mean, there's enough difference between the parties in a normal election year that, um, I don't think you're a discerning voter. I think you're a lazy voter. Um, if you haven't already made up your mind, um, but anyway, so that was the first column. The second column was, so I had to write a new column on Tuesday and that was about the New York times. Thank God this all seems like such ancient history. And the New York times thing was about, um, you know, the taxes and stuff. And, you know, I'm, I don't want to, I don't need to belabor any of it, but, um, I think the way people talk about taxes is really dumb. Um, or the way a lot of people talk about taxes uh, this idea that it is unpatriotic, that Trump was displaying his lack of patriotism by taking advantage of, of at least at this moment, what appear to be entirely legal provisions in the tax code is ludicrous. I'm open to the argument that Donald Trump isn't patriotic. I will make that argument if you like, or that his definition of patriotism is one that I don't think jibes very well with my definition of patriotism. But that's all, but none of that has to do with him not, you know, paying more in taxes. And, um, uh, and yet you had all these people saying, this just shows how even being president hasn't awakened a patriotic desire to pay his fair share, yada, yada, yada. And I think it's all nonsense. Um, first of all, do you know anybody, anybody who doesn't take their legal allowances? You don't, if you have kids, do you not declare them, uh, dependents, um, because your patriotism won't allow you to? Uh, do you not write off business expenses? If you have a home office, do you say, gosh, I'd really like this deduction, but I love my country more, so I won't. I don't know those people. Maybe they exist. But um, for the most part, patriotism just doesn't enter into it. And then you think you take into account that you have millions and millions of people in this country who actually make money from the income tax code. You know, the earned income tax credit is a is a negative tax credit or whatever the right, right terminology is. If you don't make a certain amount, you actually get a subsidy. Now, you, you can like the EITC or not like the EITC. I generally think it's, if you're going to have an anti-poverty program, it's a pretty good one because it incentivizes work and work is crazy important. Um, and there are social goods that come out of work that don't come out of sort of your sort of cliched versions of the dole or just straight welfare. So encouraging work is good. Also, um, uh, but anyway, we can talk about EITC another time if you like. My point is, is that I don't think those people are less patriotic because of that. 
Um, and I don't think that that the top 1%, which pays more in income taxes than the bottom 90%, is necessarily more patriotic because they pay more. It just doesn't enter into it. And it's just a, it's a, it's a cheap way of talking about things. And it's, it's this category error that usually comes from progressives. I remember how much it used to drive me crazy when, you know, Barack Obama would talk about how paying taxes was really just neighborliness. And, you know, it's not neighborliness when if you don't do something, men with guns will eventually come to your house and take money from you. Um, you know, if, 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 if something is a legal obligation, you shouldn't start gussing it up and, and adorning it with, um, these touchy feely notions of fairness and, um, patriotism when those really don't come into play. I think the significance of the time story is just simply that if true, and it could be wrong about stuff, um, but if true, He's not the businessman he said he was, which I, I knew. I know people in the real estate industry. I, I knew, I grew up in New York City. Um, I read, you know, all of, not all, because there's so many, but a lot of the exposés about how his business interests really worked. Wrote about it a bunch of times. He's a marketer, right? He's a self-promoter. He's a brander. And you could argue he's good at that stuff, but he was not the builder of really successful businesses. He didn't, you know, he lost money running gambling establishments. Um, you know, Trump Airways, the, what was it? The USFL, uh, um, you can go down a long list. I mean, I think it is just axiomatic as sort of, you know, a common sense observation that billionaires, and I know some billionaires, billionaires don't think it's worth their time to make YouTube videos hawking steaks and diet supplement pills, right? Um, that is a huge waste of a billionaire's time. Um, so I always knew he was not the businessman he claimed to be. But politically, I think, you know, uh, adding more proof to it is relevant. It's, it's, it's useful. I think also, you know, as Tim Carney has written at the Washington Examiner, the stuff about, uh, you know, having a financial conflict of interest with places like Turkey and the Philippines, I think all of that is relevant. Um, and while I agree with all of the punditry that said that the New York Times story um, wouldn't change anything and wouldn't um, and didn't really matter in terms of changing the dynamics of the race, I think I'll, some of that punditry then went leapt to a an additional conclusion that I think is really dumb. Um, the idea that, uh, they, they, well, they basically argued that because it didn't change anything, the Times shouldn't have published it at all, that it wasn't worth it. That, um, and the assumption there is that, the, 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 that a newspaper shouldn't truth squad a president of the United States, particularly one who didn't, who violated conventions going back to at least, I think, Richard Nixon, um, of releasing your tax returns. Um, the idea that somehow a good journalistic enterprise wouldn't want to go after that story, I think is kind of nuts. Now, you can argue that the people who leaked it to the, leaked his tax information to the Times are bad people. I'm totally open to that argument. I think that there are a lot of people who leaked to the press um, are doing a bad thing, but I don't blame the press in most cases. Times of war are a little different, right? You, you know, uh, you know, the prior restraint arguments about reporting when troop ships are arriving, I think is something that newspapers rightly shouldn't be allowed to do. But for the most part, um, it's the job of a free press in, in a democracy to do that precisely that kind of reporting. If, if, if the public, if voters don't want to give it the kind of weight that the reporters or the editors of the New York Times think they should, that's their right. But this idea that somehow, unless it's some sort of silver bullet, you shouldn't go in, you know, you shouldn't look at the, the financial conflicts of interest or the lies um, that a president, regardless of whether it's Trump, has, just seems preposterous to me. Um, so 
anyway, uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I hate doing these um, just simple recaps of stuff I've written. But again, as I said, I'm kind of frazzled. Um, I had wanted to write my G file, you know, uh, when I went to bed last night, I wanted to write the G file about, um, the importance of dogma and do a little sort of, uh, tour through GK Chesterton's head, but maybe I'll just hold on to that for another time. But since I brought it up and I don't know how to delete anything once I brought it up on this thing. I'll just make this sort of basic point, which some of you have heard me make before, you know, if you read my really underrated book, uh, Tyranny Clichés, you know, where I come down on on this. I think dogma is good. I should, to put it more precisely, I think good dogma is good. If you are one of these people who says, don't be dogmatic, um, I, you know, my first question to you is, you know, why not? Right. I mean, you can be dogmatic. You can be wrongly dog. Let me put it, let me back up. If I say to you, don't be dogmatic. And all I really mean is don't be closed minded about some specific thing. Right. You know, my daughter, she's got in her head right now that she wants to go to Columbia, which would be great. It would be a, I think a, I love my daughter in Columbia it would be brilliant to, to accept her as a student, but it is by any objective measure, kind of a stretch. And, um, if I said to her, don't be dogmatic about thinking you can only go to Columbia, I think that's a perfectly fine usage of the word dogmatic, but, um, in a colloquial John McWhorter, whatever you can get away with is fine use of language. But there are a lot of people, particularly progressives, um, who in part, because they are still the intellectual, uh, descendants of philosophical pragmatism, which I could do 500 podcasts on, how much I, uh, detailing all of my problems with it. Um, they use dogmatic as a pejorative. They use dogmatic as this, you know, way of selling the idea that um, you lack imagination or that you're closed minded or that um, you're somehow, um, you know, a worshiper of dead ideas and that kind of thing. Um, I remember when, what was it? Always loved it. Uh, was it Anthony Lewis, Tony Lewis, the New York times columnist in when he resigned from the times or retired from the times, uh, he wrote this final column or he gave a final interview. I can't remember right now where he had this absolutely ridiculous line about how you know, he learned that, um, one of his great lesson was that certainty was the great evil in the world or the enemy of decency or something like that. And, um, I remember just teeing off on it at the time, you know, cause the first question you want to ask when you hear someone say certainty is bad is, are you sure? Um, because I think certainty about things you should be certain about is not only good it is kind of necessary for this this what's this thing called civilization right i mean if if you're not sure the premeditated murder of an innocent person is bad then you're kind of a problem right if you're not sure that all other things being equal and you're not trying to like get out of some diabolical scheme that a supervillain set up to blow up the world, but that under any normal circumstances, it is wrong to torture a puppy, then you're a bad person. Or at least, I shouldn't say you're a bad person, you're an unserious person because you're, op you're so open-minded, your brain has fallen out. And, um, and so this gets me to the dogma point. You know, all dogma is, is this, uh, it comes from the Greek, means you know, something along the lines of that which seems good. That's what you take for granted to be true. Um, and, you know, Chesterton, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but he has these wonderful passages about how dogma is what makes humans special. It's what makes humans human. Um, because what we do through this sort of Hayekian, Burkean 
system of trial and error as one generation over another accumulates knowledge and wisdom through trial and error and all of these things is that we develop dogmas. We develop rules that are um, essential to a civilization, you know, and he, and, and he, he says, and again, I'm butchering the quote, but you know, he says, you know, animals don't have dogmas. Animals just embrace the world as it comes. They, you know, he says turnips are singularly broad-minded, but dogmas are systems of belief that get sort of woven into our civilization. And yeah, you take them for granted, but not in the sort of, you know, ungrateful way, but as just sort of this unquestioned way. And I want to live in a civilization. I want to live in a society where it is just dogmatically accepted by left and right, black and white, Christian and Jew and atheist and everybody down the line, that you're not supposed to torture puppies, that you're not supposed to, to murder people um, for pleasure, right? There are all sorts of things. I am dogmatically opposed to pedophilia, and I am not particularly entertained or impressed by anybody who tries to come up with clever arguments for why we should revisit that dogma. It's like people saying, you know, taboos are bad. No, taboos are really good when they're taboos against doing really evil things. And, um, and so my, my point is that, you know, this ties into, you know, the, the, the superstructure argument from suicide of the West is that a healthy civilization is a civilization that has developed huge amounts of dogmatic capital that we've refined our understanding of what cultivated is a better word, right? It's where culture comes from, same root. Uh, we have cultivated a, um, a healthy set of dogmas that separate us from our animal selves. And, um, you know, you know, and that's why the great danger, right? The threat from barbarianism that I keep talking about on this podcast and feel like an idiot for continually repeating myself, the great danger of barbarianism is this idea that you should just go with your feelings, right? That the, 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 the superstructure of dogma, the superstructure of, uh, of, notions of right and wrong that aren't found in nature, right? In our, na in our natural environment, uh, in the, throughout the historical record, rape was not considered wrong. Rape within your little tribe was considered wrong. And even there, there were some allowances for it, but rape of your enemies, women, um, that was natural and good. And that you were right under the spoils of war. It, you know, there's an enormous amount of literature talking about how many how how prevalent infanticide was in almost every ancient society um there's a particularly weird and creepy thing about infanticide of twins or at least one of the twins and part of it the theory goes is that having two babies of the same age was just too much uh first of all it's creepy that these two things look identical right um but even if they're not identical twins it's a um, uh, it's a huge risk to resources because you have a mother who can't necessarily feed both kids, carry both kids. Um, and so there's a, was a widespread practice, I, you know, in Japan and lots of, lots of civilizations, lots of societies, lots of cultures to kill one of the twins. That's natural. That thing in you that now says, my God, that's terrible. That is your rightly formed conscience that you get through dogma, <laughs> that you get through, um, you know, the process of, of, of both reason and experience and cultivating the best parts of human nature while tamping down the worst parts of human nature. And, you know, it's just to take it back to Trump for two seconds. Um, all these people wishing Donald Trump dies from coronavirus, that is an entirely natural response. The part of you who says you shouldn't do that, 
is the civilizational part of your programming kicking in. Saying, yeah, I know in my gut, oh man, man, does he deserve it? Uh, you know, this is, this is, you know, payback's a bitch, all that kind of stuff. We have lots of wiring that makes us think that way. And we have, uh, the, but we also have programming as distinct from wiring, right? Programming in the sense of how we are raised to be human beings that tells us that you should, you should be more charitable, that you should turn the other cheek, that you shouldn't wish ill of other people. And I totally understand why that's sometimes really, really hard to do. But that's sort of what I'm getting at about the importance of dogma. Um, and the danger, and I, I, I can't get too deep and further in the weeds about Chesterton right now, but the, the, part of the, the part of the danger is when you start working from this assumption that dogma is bad, you create this whole, and I know you use the phrase permission structure too much, but you create, create this, these incentives to, to, to revisit questions that should not be open questions anymore. And it's particularly a danger when you don't believe you have any dogma. Um, and that's, that's where philosophical pragmatism comes in. Philosophical pragmatism was this brilliant way, this brilliant um, tool. Uh, I think Lewis Manan calls it, you know, the pragmatist razor. Um, this brilliant tool for slicing and dicing and dissecting other dogmas, other philosophies. And um, the um, and th that's where you got among the progressives who were all disciples, not all, but huge numbers of them, were disciples of people like William James and John Dewey, who were the leading pragmatists. There was Charles Peirce, who, and it's pronounced Peirce, not Pierce, um, who actually came up with the name pragmatism. Uh, but William James used it and then changed its meaning so much that uh, Peirce abandoned it and, and embraced a phrase, um, pragmaticism or something along those lines. And I think he had this line about how he thought he finally came up with a name for his baby that was so ugly no one would want to adopt it. Um, but anyway, the, the progressives had this idea about being the disinterested public servant who would only follow science and facts, right? You get a lot of this kind of stuff in the last 10 years from, you know, some of the Vox type arguments about um, only going where the data takes you. Well, if you don't admit your priors, if you don't understand that you actually do have some, whether you want to call them dogmatic or ideological commitments, then it becomes all the easier to assume the data is taking to taking you where you want to go. You know, that's that famous line from Paul Krugman where he said, the simple fact is that um, facts have a liberal bias. You know, and his point is being that just the facts, uh, because they're facts, prove liberals to be right. And this is one of the reasons why I love Russ Roberts so much, is that Russ Roberts has some deep dogmatic commitments. He has some deep um, ideas about what is right and good about how organized a society, but he is constantly acknowledging that he could be wrong. He's constantly acknowledging um, and searching for where his confirmation bias might be. I try to do that more and more. That's one of the reasons why I wrote Suicide the West the way I did. Um, it's hard, but it's so much harder if you think dogma is just for those people and that you don't have anything of the like, right? You know, that, that we're just fact finders who go and empiricists and we just go wherever you know the numbers and the facts take us without any prior commitments but you conservatives with your dogma um you know you are always you only look for you're like the drunk who looks for his car keys only where the light is good and you only want to see the results that affirm your position lots of conservatives do that lots of liberals do that but one of the things i always loved about conservatism and libertarianism um, but really conservatism is that we constantly argue about, at least we used to, um, about where the trade-offs are between competing commitments, competing ideological or principled or dogmatic commitments, freedom and, you know, freedom and order, liberty and virtue, um, you know, uh, prosperity and the common welfare. You know, you come up with dozens of these things. And, um, 
And that's what made arguing fun is that you kind of, even when you disagreed with a libertarian or a conservative or a different flavor of conservative, you could concede that their priorities were important too, but that they were investing more in them than they should have because they were coming at the expense of another set of priorities. Uh, the, 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 the central problem, I argue, and I still believe this, about progressivism is that it doesn't believe in the trade-offs. It, doesn't believe, it believes that all good things can go together, that you can fight climate change without um, hurting the economy. It'll only help the economy, that all good things go together. And that's the kind of thinking you get when, you're when you think you're unconstrained by dogma. Because when you think you're unconstrained by your dogma, that's when your dogma has the most power over you because you don't even think to examine it. So anyway, I guess I won't write that G-file now for a while. Um, and I think, though, that that's sort of maybe the through line of where I come down on conservatism generally. And it's a big part of why I started this podcast. And hopefully some of you stuck around to listen to it, or maybe not, because maybe I made a fool of myself. I have no idea. Anyway, I will see you guys uh, next week. Thanks so much for listening. If you can give us some good reviews, we, we kind of trended down for a little while in the iTunes rankings, which shouldn't bother me because I, I know for a fact that the iTunes rankings are far from scientific because I know the numbers of some podcasts that we have better numbers than, but I still like to see the remnant in there. And it's still really great to get positive feedback on Twitter and in the comment sections um, at the dispatch, of course, but also um, at iTunes and other places like that. Um, so if you can help, you know, with that effort, uh, really appreciate it. And, uh, I'll see you next time.